In the summer of 1963, Ruth and I married. So it's been a while. And three weeks after we married, we loaded up the 1960 Corvair that we got, that I got in the deal. Now, some of you are old enough to remember what a Corvair is. And we loaded that sucker up and headed for Wheaton Graduate School in Wheaton, Illinois. It was like grapes of wrath heading east. And uh, we got to Illinois, and we're California people by upbringing. And Illinois people are different, like they're solid. It's not that Californians are flaky, but Midwestern people have roots, and, and they have tough winters, and they know how to survive. And, and they spoke a different language. When we got there, they, they said things in interesting ways. One of them was this. When they would invite you to go somewhere with them, they would say something like this. I'm going to go to, the, to McDonald's. Would you like, instead of saying, would you like to come with us, they would say, you want to go with and they drop the pronoun off the end, you want to go with. And we thought, well, you know, why don't you like finish the sentence or something? But, but the fact is that was just a colloquial way of saying that. It's a very interesting way, and I love it. You want to go with. It's that, that preposition, with, that I want to talk about this morning in the light of Ecclesiastes 4. We've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes <laughs> And uh, we're calling it the facts of life because it has to do with life. And the person who, who uh, is writing it, King Solomon, he's, he's been there. He's seen it all. He's done it all. He's had it all. all of, and he gets to the end of it all, and he says the whole deal is just chasing the wind. Just say, I mean, listen to how he says it in the seventh verse of the fourth chapter of Ecclesiastes 4. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. Like that's his operative word, meaningless. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For, for whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. So the question is, where do we find meaning? Where do we find meaning? That's the first thing in your, in your bulletin. And according to this writer, nowhere. The writer's a cynic. He's worn out. He's tired. He's seen it all. He's done it all. He despairs of wealth and work. He said, I don't find meaning in my stuff. I don't find meaning with all the women I've had. I don't, I don't find meaning in all the drinking I've done. I don't find meaning in all my palaces and my... I don't find meaning anywhere. He said, there's oppression on all sides. You'd be better off dead. Well, more than that, you'd be better off if you weren't even born. It's all about competition and envy and keeping up with the Joneses and working from sunup to sundown. I mean, you get done with this book, it hurts your head. I, I read through the whole of Ecclesiastes yesterday morning. It doesn't take very long. By the time I was done, I needed meds. I couldn't believe it. I said, boy, what is it with this guy? It's what philosophers call nihilism. Nihilism or nihilism is a word that means nothing. That philosophy is that life is absolutely totally devoid of meaning. There's no objective purpose or consequence or value. That's what this guy's philosophy is. This isn't just a guy who sees, sees the glass half full. This guy doesn't even have a glass. I mean, he's just way, way down there. He says, what's the use? Why even try? Why go forward? It's a huge effort. There's no result. And then right in the middle of this writing in Ecclesiastes, this is like his personal diary where he's just rambling and just venting and so forth. He gets to what we call chapter 4, and it's like he takes a deep breath. <clears throat> and he goes, well, there is one thing. 
And this is the one thing he says brings meaning. Verse 9 of chapter 4 says, this is the hope in the face of despair, which is the title of our talk. Two are better than one. That's where you find meaning. Two are better than one. Why? Because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And then at the end of that little passage, he tosses this little piece in. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. In this passage, he moves from description. He's describing just how crummy life is and how there's, no, there's nothing left at the end of it. You might as well go back to dust or never been, you know, he's going rambling like that. But he moves from describing that to prescription, to prescribing the one thing that brings meaning according to him. And I would agree at the core that this is the thing that brings me meaning. If you're a builder, he's giving you working drawings. If you're a physician, he's giving you the antidote to whatever the illness is you're treating. If you're a pilot, he's giving you the flight plan in these few verses. If you're a mathematician, this is the correct equation for solving the problem that you're facing. If you want meaning, now if you want to be meaningless, just do what he does, just check stuff out and say, ah, it's just baloney, I'll just, you know, do my best for today and then whatever, it's oblivion and all that. But if you want meaning, two are better than one. Why do things work better with two? Why do they work better with two? Well, we're designed for it. Now, those of you who have been around, Ruth and I have been here about three years, those of you who have heard me talk know that I talk about this a lot. And, you, and you're rolling your eyes this morning saying, oh, no, here we go again. Johnny one note. Foth is going to talk about two and the three, and Jesus shows up like, like our friend, uh, our musician friend just talked about. Tom, excuse me. Tom, wherever you are, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to forget your name. Actually, I'm not Johnny One Note. I'm Johnny Two Note. This has to do with what we are designed for and by whom we are designed. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it says, God says, let us make man in our image. This is a joint effort. This is a joint venture of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saying, let us make man in our image and intrinsically, at the core, that says two are better than one. A threefold cord is not easily or quickly broken. In the next chapter in Genesis 2.18, it says it's not good that man should be what? Alone. Now, we know that intuitively. You've heard me say this before. When you're a little kid and you get in trouble today, at least, this is how it works. Kids get a timeout. Okay, you've acted in a socially unacceptable manner. We'll put you over here. Get a timeout. If you're an adult and you act out badly, we put you in prison and say, we'll put you over there. This is a real timeout. And if you're bad in prison, we put you where? Solitary. It's not good for man to be in solitary. Now, aloneness is a condition. Some of you say, but I'm more, I'm more inward. I don't need like 12 people around me to be happy or any of that. We're all designed to have someone there 
Some of us may like solitary better than others, but solitude is a choice. Aloneness is a condition. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, I just like to be lonely. I just like to be bereft and by myself. No, no, that's sick. You don't want to go there. <laughs> but here this, this writer is saying it's not good that man should be alone. And the scriptures are replete with illustrations of how together works, whether it's Adam and Eve or Moses, Aaron and Hur, those three brothers, or Daniel and the Hebrew children back in the Old Testament, or David and Jonathan, these two warriors who were brothers by relationship, or Jesus in the Gospels. He selects three. His whole plan of reconciliation, of reconciling us to the Father, is based on this mechanism of choosing three guys to walk with him and then nine others besides that. And when you read the book of Acts, the first half is Peter and John. It, it, it emphasizes them walking together. And the last half is Paul and company walking together. It's what scientists or what Webster's Dictionary or Wikipedia calls synergy. It's a $4 word that means this. Synergy is two or more things functioning together to produce a result not independently obtainable. Synergy is two or more things functioning together to produce a result not independently obtainable. Or to put it in simpler language, two are better than one. It works in hiking, working out, building things, designing things, deciding things. Ruth and I like to travel by car. We just came back from a trip. We took a little drive through 15 states over the last 15 days, 4,800 miles. We went through Colorado and Kansas and Oklahoma and Arkansas. And we were going to Washington, D.C., but we went by way of Alabama, like the most direct route. <laughs> and along the way, I spoke in various places, like not in fields and stuff, but to like people, you know. <laughs> And we went to Adams County, Pennsylvania, where they have 20,000 acres of apple orchards. And we bought apples like there's no tomorrow because they were cheap. And this is a Nittany apple. If you've never had a Nittany apple, you're not getting this one. This is a, just a... <laughs> but these are, these are like... Anyway, they're really good. And, and so we brought home a bunch of these. <laughs> Our car smelled like a cider mill by the time we got back. And then we stopped in Virginia, and Ruth went into an antique store. We went there together, but... That form of together is she goes in and I stay in the car and read. <laughs> now, if she has a task for me, like I need this, then I'm good in there. But I'm, I'm not generally good in there. And, and she came back out and she had a dozen of these. These are old-fashioned perfect mason jars. They're blue ones and you can stuff and put them in here. And she was so excited. She's over there. She came out and she said, I got a dozen of these. And I'm saying, that's terrific. No, no, I don't care. And... <laughs> But when she, when she brought it home and made applesauce and put it in it, now I care. I love mason jars. <laughs> the coolest thing about it is we did it together. I don't mean like the shopping and the canning, but the other stuff we did together. <laughs> See, when you're alone and you're driving 4,800 miles, alone's not good if you've got to drive 4,800 miles. You can't say, look at that. Because you're just saying it to yourself. There's no, there's no enjoyment. You can't say, how about you driving for a while? You can't do that. 
You can't say, what do you think about? And, and who do you have fights with? You gotta fight with yourself, that doesn't work. <laughs> On the 30th of September, when we were in Virginia, I went to Fort Myers, Virginia, which abuts the uh, Arlington National Cemetery. I had been invited by a friend who was retiring from the military. He was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and I met him years ago when he wasn't chairman. His name's Admiral Mike Mullen, and he was stepping down and handing off to the Chief of Staff of the Army, Marty Dempsey, General Marty Dempsey. And it was a big deal. Like, it was me and like 2,000 of his closest friends, you know, just all these people out there. And they had all the bands from all the services, and they even had the Colonial Guard, who are the fife and drum corps dressed up like Colonial soldiers. It was just a moment. It was a warm September day. It's just fantastic. The most impressive thing of the whole ceremony, and they had flyover and the whole deal. The most impressive thing was when Admiral Mullen spoke and when General Dempsey spoke, both of them in their brief remarks said the same thing about that moment. Admiral Mullen spent 43 years in military service, General Dempsey 30-some. They both said the same thing in different ways. And it was this, they didn't say, I am here today and so grateful for being able to graduate from the Naval Academy and this officer mentored me and I got this break. And all of those things might be true, but that's not what they said. The first thing they said was, I stand here today in large part because of that woman, my wife. Deborah, thank you for walking with me all these years when I was deployed and in the hard seasons, and thank you. And when General Dempsey stood up, he said, Dina, thank you for walking with me all. And they said, I could not, I could not be here. I could not have done what I've done. I could not have served the nation without her by my side. Two are better than one. And at the biggest like military event, when you hand off the office of the highest military position in the United States, to hear men say that is profound. Two really are better than one. The last time I talked about together, which was a few months ago, uh, an Air Force officer from this congregation came to me and he said, I'm in Cheyenne, I work with missiles. And he said, we do something systematically with missiles is that we, we check the metal skin on the outside for any defects because you don't want something going off course if you fire off a missile. You don't want that happening. So we check regularly. I don't know if it was every week or every month, but he said, we never do it alone. We always have another person with us to follow up on what we're checking to make sure we got it right. right. And we call that person my two-man. He's the two-man or the two-woman in some cases. It's, it's that person. It's that backup thing. You always do that because two minds, two sets of hands, two sets of eyes on the problem really are better than one. But more than that, it's better than one because it gives life meaning. It gives life meaning. Two really are essential. When I think of this, I think of how this writer says it, and he's, he's very straightforward. The whole rest of the book, he rambles, and he goes off here, and he goes off there, and he's just grousing. But you get to this, and he's very particular. He says, you get better work done when there are two. When you two work together, you get better. It's practical help. Practical help when the unexpected happens. You're out on a walk, one of you falls, there's one to help you up. Otherwise, you're stuck. That's how it is. You're walking on a trail, somebody slips, and the other guy grabs it. Two really 
is a better thing than one. In the Twin Towers on that horrific day, 9-11, there were people who thought they were trapped on some of those floors. They couldn't see because of the density of the smoke. And they would tell the story that in the smoke on the far side, I saw the beam of a light and I called out and somebody would say, come this way, follow the light. Two really are better than one. It's practical help. Secondly, it's protection from the elements. I have a friend who was brought up in an orphanage in Juneau, Alaska. It's called the Alaskan Youth Village. And when my friend was 16, he soloed and he, he flew. He went in the Air Force, but he always flew his own plane. And he and his teenage son, years later, were flying a, a Stinson, a, a double-wing aircraft, out over the, the area west of Juneau, Alaska, toward a huge island called Admiralty Island. And something happened, the elements were just right, and they got what they call carburetor icing, which disallows the fuel going to the engines, shut down the engines, and they were going to crash, essentially. And Jerry McNevin, my friend, said to his son, Gerald, I'm going to glide this in as close as I can get to the shore before we run out or before we go down, and I'm going to try to belly land. And when that happens, throw the doors open, dive into the water, and swim to the shore. They landed about 200 yards out, 600, 600 feet or more. And they swam to the shore. All they had was their shoes, their jeans, and wool shirts. They got out soaking wet, shivering. The sun was starting to go down. They found some logs, and they spelled SOS on the beach. And then they found a piece of plastic that had washed up. And they went and lay down in the lee of a big log, and they spooned. They just got down, and he said, son, come here, front to back. And he said, come here. And they wrapped the piece of plastic around them, and all night they held each other and just shivered violently all night which in some sense keeps you warm. That's the body's response. And they survived the night and were rescued the next morning. It, being together in this way can protect you from the elements. A mother who throws her body across the body of a child when a tornado's coming, it's instinctive. Two really are better than one, and it gives meaning. It's protection from attack. When Ruth and I went to D.C. in 1993, one of the places we ended up working for a time was not Capitol Hill or the Pentagon or the White House or anything, but it was Southeast D.C. Southeast D.C. is a quadrant of the city that is most underserved. It used to be called the Killing Fields. The year we went, they had 365 murders in Washington, D.C. That's one a day. We have one or two here in Fort Collins each year. And this area was a dangerous area. And I was walking on the street with an African-American brother. And he said, Dick, when we walk down the street, do not make eye contact with the young men who are coming towards you because that's a challenge. But the second thing is whatever happens, remember this, I've got your back. It was the first time I'd ever heard that phrase. It was 18 years ago. First time I'd ever heard that phrase. But this is what the writer is saying. He said, when there are two of you together, someone's got your back. That's just how it is physically emotionally spiritually someone to walk with and then he comes down to this ending portion and he says now just <clears throat> one more thing a threefold cord is not so easily broken or not quickly broken you can take two strands and in kids camp i've seen that the the kids teachers do this they'll take two pieces of thread and they'll have a kid come up and they can break one and they can break two but you add a third and it's much much more difficult for them to break and that's, that's how it is. That, and what happens is that adding one is not just adding one. Adding one is really multiplying. When you add a third, it's multiplying. It's exponential. It infuses that synergy that we talked about 
Jesus captured in Matthew 18, 20, where he says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am with them. There's that word with. This idea of three being together or in your marriage, if you're married, you and him and Jesus is the third one. That's not quickly broken. Two, in some cases, can be pretty quickly broken. But three is not easily broken. When you have a good friend and Jesus is with, that's not easily broken. I love the illustration that two pianos tuned by the same tuning fork are automatically tuned to each other. There is something that happens when there is a threefold chord. Ruth and I, on our way back, stopped in St. Louis and met our friends Rich and Becky Dixon. How many remember Rich and Becky? We prayed for them when they, he's hand cycling the Mississippi River. Do you remember that? He got that cool recumbent cycle and, and some folks here in town, some corporations helped him, helped them go there. And they started hand cycling from Lake Itasca, Minnesota, the, the headwaters of the Mississippi. And they're going all the way to New Orleans. Rich was paralyzed from the chest down in a fall from his roof 24 years ago, but he had this dream. And so he's hand cycling the Mississippi in part to raise money for kids like we saw in the Christmas box thing for Samaritan Perth around the world. And for every dollar they raise, and you can go to the website, it says richesride.org. Just go there and it takes you to Convoy of Hope. For every dollar that they bring in, it's matched by corporate sponsors from Convoy. But the, but the cool part is, is that they just... They were just there in the hotel at the Drury Inn. The fellow on the left there is Rich McClure. He's an old friend who happens to be president of Unigroup. Unigroup is United Van Lines, Mayflower. They got insurance stuff around the world. And they're partnering with them to help. So they paid for four nights for these guys to stay in the hotel there. And so you've got a threefold cord. You've got Rich and Becky and Monty the dog. Oh, I don't know if a dog is a full cord or maybe he's two cords. I have no idea. But, but they're having this grand adventure. People flagging them down because they've been on TV in various places. People will flag them down on the road. Guys will get out of their cards, walk over to Rich and say, I've got a son who's disabled and I need it. I don't have anybody to talk to. I need you to talk to me about that. They spoke at a university, a Christian university in Minneapolis, and afterwards they were pulling out of the parking lot, and a kid was mowing the lawn, and he came running across and stopped traffic, and they rolled down the window. They said, I didn't know why I came to this school until you spoke there this morning, and now I know why I'm here, that I shouldn't give up, that I shouldn't quit, that even though it's difficult, I should stay with it. So they're having a grand time. They're meeting with a congresswoman this afternoon in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. We met him on the 800-mile mark of a 1,500-mile trip. So when you think of them, please pray for them. Go to richesride.org. He blogs. He's a good writer, and it's just a good deal. At the end of Jesus' earthly journey, he hands off, and he gives what we call the Great Commission. It says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. He comes to the end of that phrase and says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age when you get Jesus as your two-man, he's really the one man, but if you get Jesus as your two-man, know this. Friends can fail you. That's true. But he never does. Deuteronomy says that God will never leave us nor forsake us. I love the story that Gary Envig tells 
about two young men who trained for the military together, went to battle together. One of them was desperately wounded in a battle and was lying out dying out there in no man's land, as it were, and the fire, the crossfire was withering, and the young friend started to go get him, and the sarge grabbed him, jerked him back, and said, don't go out there, he's already dying, you're going to get killed, and, and he turned to do something. The sergeant turned to do something else, and this kid bolts. And he goes for his friend. He grabs him, brings him back, has hit himself on the way back. He falls into the foxhole, and he's carrying his friend who, who's dead. He already died. And this young man is dying. And the sergeant looked at him and said, I told you this is stupid. What a waste. It's absolutely a waste. It wouldn't make any difference. And the young man in his dying breath said, oh, but it did make a difference. When I got to him, the last thing he said was, Jim, I knew you'd come. Here is the God who, when we connect with him, when we invite him in, says, I will never leave you or forsake you, whatever your condition, whatever your situation. I love the imagery that he uses. He uses this imagery. In Matthew, the 11th chapter, this is a, this is a yoke that I got for Ruth or us. In an antique store, in an antique store in Pennsylvania, years ago, I wanted to make points, so I went by myself to an antique store. I said, "Where'd you get this?" They said, "A doctor found it on the prairies of Kansas. It's used, they think, for training young steers to be in the yoke." And Jesus says this: Everybody who's overworked, overburdened, tired, feels like stuff's meaningless. Come to me, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for you got a yoke, yours just doesn't fit, and you're in it by yourself. Come to me, and let's do this together. I'll be the lead person. This piece fits you perfectly. Let's do this thing together. It's like Jesus walking into my life saying, where are you going, folks? I said, I don't know. How are you doing? Not too good. What are you going to do that has meaning? I have no idea. And he looks at me and grins and says, well, I'm going to my father's house. You want to go with? Let's bow our hearts together and our heads. Lord Jesus, thank you for this moment. Thank you for your grace among us. Just in this quiet moment with your heads bowed, no one looking, I just want to ask two questions. First question is, you may be a believer this morning. You are f following Jesus. You're with him. But what you feel is overwhelmed. The set of circumstances, whatever it is, has just been overwhelming in the last week or weeks or months. And you're here because you know you need to be here. <laughs> but you just say, I, I just need prayer this morning because I, I'm just overwhelmed by stuff. I trust Jesus, but I'd like you to include me in your prayer when you close, Pastor Dick. Would you just slip your hand up wherever you are and just let me, yes, yep, yep. Lots of us feel that, lots of us, yep. You can put your hand down. There may be some here this morning who are just visiting you say, I don't, it's the first time I've ever heard this or I've heard it a couple times, but something is tugging in me and I've, I've never said to Jesus, I'd like, I'd like to be in yoke with you and harness with you. I, I need you to change my life. I need, I need you to walk with me because I don't know how to do this. And this morning you'd say, I'd like to start that journey. 
I'd like to, I'd like to do that. And I don't know exactly how that works, but I'm willing to give it a try. And you just slip your hand up and say, pray for me. Yes, I see your hand there. Yes, 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 I see your hand. Yes, lots of us. And in the South, yes. Lord Jesus, you've seen our hands that express our hearts. You know us better than we know ourselves. I pray for these who are believers in you, but just feel overwhelmed at the moment, that, that you will draw us to the facts of who you are so that our feelings, in fact, will be overwhelmed, but also give us people, a person in our lives that helps us walk with you. Thank you for that, Lord Jesus. And for these who slipped up a hand and said, I don't know anything really about this Jesus business, but, but I'd like to start that journey. Thank you for their willingness to put up a hand and say, this is my first step, a step of trust. I pray that you will just give them insight. And even as they leave this service today, that you will provide for them somebody to walk with them. We give you praise and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. That's a good thing to say. Glory to God. He deserves it. Our prayer team is coming this morning. There may be some here who say, you know, love the music, love the worship, love the little thoughts you gave Hoth and all that, but I, I just need somebody for a moment just to have a prayer with me because I've got this particular thing. The people who are coming not only believe prayer works, they've experienced what happens when you talk to God together. So our team is coming as we close our time, and I'm going to give a benediction. That's Latin for a good word. And this is it. As you go this morning, go in his grace, go in his power, go with somebody, and know wherever you are this week, wherever you are, it is not an accident because Jesus is with you. He's constantly saying, want to go with? And he'll be there. God bless you. Go in his grace this morning.